you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hey everybody, Seth Meyers here. Welcome to another episode of Late Night Lit, our monthly series spotlighting books and authors. Here to shine some light on what's new and noteworthy in the world of literature is our very own Sarah Jenks Daily. Take it away, Sarah. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Jenks Daly and welcome to Late Night Lit. This month we're featuring two brilliant female writers. First, best-selling and award-winning author Anne Patchett, whose exceptional new essay collection, These Precious Days, was published this month. Second, we speak to Jacqueline Coley, awards editor at Rotten Tomatoes, who joins us to talk about The Ultimate Binge Guide, a new book from the people at Rotten Tomatoes about the TV shows that not only define television, but also those shows you should be watching. And we'll hear book recommendations from a very special late-night VIP. Anne Patchett is one of the most celebrated novelists of our time, and for good reason. She's the author of eight novels, three nonfiction books, a children's book, and countless essays, many of which have become international best-selling works. Her latest, These Precious Days, is a collection of essays exploring topics like grief, love, relationships, and friendships. And as Anne explains, this book came out of a time when her interest was less focused on fiction and more on writing about the world in front of her. It's exceptional and moving and certainly worth a read. Now here's my conversation with Anne. Hi everyone and welcome to Late Night Lit. Today we are joined by the award-winning and best-selling author Anne Patchett. Anne, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Sarah, I'm always glad to talk to you. I'm always glad to talk to you too. I know you to be a person who doesn't watch much TV or listen to many podcasts, but reads so many books. Yeah. And I wanted to start <laughs> off with just right now, how many books you're reading in this, in a given week or how much you've been reading lately? You know, it's, it's not like that. It has everything to do with how much I get into a certain book. That, you know, there are weeks that I can read three or four books and there are plenty of weeks that I don't finish a single book because I'm reading something long or hard or more likely I bail out on something. Um, but I'll tell you right now, bedrock, I have made a commitment to read one John Updike story every day, which started in July. I am reading all the way through all of the Updike stories, which will take me 
a little less than a year. Wow. And um, and I'm reading a middle grade novel by Gregory Maguire that's coming out in March called Cress Watercress about bunnies, Sarah. It's about bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> when you, you said you bail, which I'm glad to hear sometimes that you do that too, because I often do. Daily, every day I bail on something. How much do you give yourself? Like how much do you get in or allow yourself to get in before you bail? How much of a chance do you give the novel? It depends on the first page. I mean, there are plenty of books that I I just open up. I mean, basically every single day, at least one galley comes to my house and sometimes five. So I can open up, look at a page, and if it doesn't have me from hello, I won't go farther. The most depressing thing is to bail 200 pages into a book. Right. You know, to really think, it's it's like investing in a relationship and then thinking, oh, I just blew two years uh, and I don't love you after all. Uh, <laughs> that's really bad. It, it's not bad to break up with a book, you know, after coffee, but 200 pages, it's sad. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One of the reasons you get so many books is besides being an author and an avid reader, you own a bookstore. Oh, yeah. Parnassus in, in your hometown of Nashville. Yep. Aside from getting all these books, how has that changed your relationship <laughs> with books and writing in general? It's changed my relationship with reading profoundly because we're just about to have our 10th anniversary at Parnassus. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. I've been thinking about how my life has changed in the last 10 years. And mostly it's really been for the better. But in terms of my reading, it's, uh, it's destroyed my reading life to co-own a bookstore. I used to read Henry James, and then I would read Jane Austen, and then I would read Zadie Smith, and then I would go back and read Nathaniel West. I mean, I just read all over the place. And now... All I read are galleys, which is why I started reading one Updike story a day, because it kind of grounded me and made me feel like, well, at least I'm going to be learning something every day. But I read so widely. I read across all genres now, which I never used to do. I read equal amounts of fiction, nonfiction, children, zombie apocalypse, graphic novels, everything. Um, but everything is coming out in four to six months. I'm always reading into the future. And I read a ton of bad books. That's the, that's the biggest difference. It used to be I only read good books because I read throughout all of history and around the world. Now I just read things that are beyond current. So current, they're not even out yet. I have that issue too sometimes for the show, but I think it also is kind of a cool thing when people ask to say, oh, well, this is coming out and I actually already read it. Yes, it's true. And and I read fantastic, beautiful things. I mean, literature is alive and well in this country. This fall in publishing has been so spectacular. So many strong books coming out. We have a first editions club at the store and that's my job. So every month I have to pick a book well, yeah, that's coming out in four months um, that we can get signed first editions of and then we mail them out. So I'm, that's what I'm constantly reading for. You mentioned signing books. I know one of the things you do at Parnassus for your own books is you sign all the copies of the books that you've written in the store. Is that still true? Yes, yes. So how many copies have you signed in advance of this new book, These Precious Days, which is coming out this month? 
It's, it's so hard to say because I've signed, let's say I've signed 15,000 tip sheets. So those are sheets that are signed, that are sewn into the book before production. I've probably signed 5,000 book plates that have gone to different countries. Now, the book comes out November 23rd. I am signing books at the bookstore two hours a day in advance of that. So every morning I go over to the bookstore and I sign for two hours uh, just to keep ahead of the avalanche. Basically, I think by the end of this, I will have signed and very possibly gift-wrapped and mailed every single copy of this book myself. Well, it is a beautiful book, so congratulations, and I loved reading it so much. I think most people know you as a novelist, even though you've put out an essay collection before. The story of A Happy Marriage was almost 10 years ago now, that the other essay collection you did. So did this one come together in a similar way? I think it was like eight years ago, but I'm not positive. No, it wasn't similar, because when I did Happy Marriage... I went through my whole career writing nonfiction. I had, I had boxes of tear sheets of things that I had published, you know, since I was in my early 20s. Uh, this book, I really wrote as a book. You know, it wasn't like I was just going back through old stuff and finding things and putting things together. I had a ton of stuff to choose from. This book really came out of the pandemic. Uh, I didn't have any desire to write fiction while I was home, but I had a desire to write. I wanted to write nonfiction because it just felt like a nonfiction time in life. I didn't need to make things up. The world was too weird. And so I started writing these really long essays just for myself. And I did later place a bunch of them, uh, but it was, it was just about what I wanted to write for myself while I was stuck at home. And the title of the book is also a title of one of the essays, beautiful essay that you wrote and published in Harper's last year about your friend Suki. For those who haven't had the chance to read it, can you just talk a little bit about it? Sure. And kind of why you decided to make that one the the title and sort of maybe the cornerstone of the book? Well, it's huge. (laughs) It's a really, really long essay. It's uh, about 60 pages of the book. And... um, I had met this woman, uh, Soke Raphael. She was Tom Hanks's assistant. I was interviewing Tom a couple of years ago when his book came out. I met her for a minute. We struck up a little spark the way one does sometimes. Actually, you and I did that. <laughs> it was a very similar sort of thing when we met doing something like this before. It was like, oh, hey, I really like you. And then you keep in touch with somebody. And I kept in touch with Soki very lightly. And then it turns out she had pancreatic cancer, which I didn't even know about, had a surgery, went into remission, and then the cancer came back. And that was kind of the point at which we started communicating more. She was looking for a clinical trial in a hurry to get into when the cancer came back. My husband is a doctor in Nashville where we live, and he found a trial for Suki to get into There was going to be one in Los Angeles, the same one where she lived. She was going to come here for two weeks, start the trial here, and then go back to L.A. But then the pandemic hit, and she couldn't travel. 
the uh, clinical trial at UCLA was canceled as so many clinical trials were canceled during COVID because hospitals were overwhelmed. So she stayed here and the three of us lived together, like didn't leave the house for more than three months. And we had a fantastic time. It was just this really magical, wonderful time of being shipwrecked with somebody who you don't know, but wind up really loving. And at some point, I said to her, I'm going to have to write about this. She was a super private person, really quiet and shy. And I said, I have to write about it because it's the only way I can make sense of everything that's happening. And I don't ever need to publish it. It can be just something I write for the two of us. And after I write it, you will be the one to make that decision. And, um, and I did, and, and she read it, and she loved it, and it was really important to her. And she started letting her friends and her family read it. And they all said, yes, this is exactly how we see you too. Because she thought I was being too nice. She thought I was being overly flattering. But it was, it was like holding up a mirror. And she was so happy with how I had seen her and happy to realize that other people had seen her that way. And then I published it and it went around the world and people from around the world just poured out their love to Suki and she found all sorts of people she had lost touch with in her life. Um, and then I thought, oh, I want this to be a book. You know, I want this, I want there to be a book built around this essay because it was my way of, of keeping her. Well, sadly, then you wrote this follow-up essay. You write about when she leaves you, when she leaves in Nashville, you're kind of unsure about the future. And you didn't really know what was going to happen with her health or or if you were going to be able to see her again. Yes, yes. Um, I did know <laughs> because, because I live in the house with a doctor and because I think that there are a few incredibly fortunate people who beat pancreatic cancer beating recurrent pancreatic cancer is a whole other thing. So I was hopeful she was doing so well. I was hopeful that uh, she would continue to do well for longer than she did. Uh, I got to go out to LA just before she died and spend two weeks with her, which was just an amazing, amazing gift. And I wrote an epilogue for the book that was about the fact that she wasn't going to make it. And the cover art for the book is a painting that she did. And there was an entire sort of other piece of that story was her art and sharing it with the world and painting in your home and the yeah. art show that she was able to do. So I think that must have been a special piece too, to be able to include that in that way. It was huge. Um, she was such a beautiful painter and she was a very busy person. She had two kids and she had a huge job and she traveled the world and worked for sun up to sunset. And in her heart, she just wanted the time to paint. And that's what pancreatic cancer gave her. And so when she was living with us, I was upstairs writing and she was downstairs painting every day and she just wouldn't waste a second. So the painting on the cover is of our dog Sparky, uh, who she painted while she was staying with us. She actually did several great Sparky paintings. And right before she died, 10 days before she died, she had an amazing retrospective of her paintings in Santa Monica. And it truly was 
uh, I said, it, it's your it's your wedding, your art opening, and your funeral. Uh, and she got to be there, and everyone came to tell her how much they love her. It was such a celebration, such a, a beautiful pulling together of all the components of her life. But it's so special that you, you got to have that time with her. Yeah. The essays cover so much of your life, too. Travel stories and friendship stories and love and relationships and then grief, obviously, and how we hold and process that. Were there any that you almost didn't include or any that you wanted to and ultimately decided not to? Yeah, I have this process, which I call the weak sister. Um, and I did that for my first essay collection as well. But I send the book out to one friend at a time. I think I sent it to three people said, you know, read this and tell me what you think the weak sister is. What's the essay that should go? And then that people will tell you one. They'll never tell you more than one. So my friend Katrina Kennison read it first, and she said, you know, pull this one. And then I wrote a new essay. And then Miley Malloy read it, and she said, oh, pull this one. And then I wrote a new essay. And finally, when I thought it was all done, my oh, and Kate DiCamillo read it too. I don't think she told me to pull anything because she's really nice. <laughs> All of these people are nice. And then when my editor read it, there was a long profile in the book that I thought was great. That was a piece about Reese Witherspoon that I had written for Vanity Fair, and it was super long, and it was about feminism and and women taking control of their lives and. It, it was a great piece. And he called me and he said, you know, I think this is really a great piece, but it's still a celebrity profile and it doesn't fit. And as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, okay, you're right. That makes perfect sense. And then I thought, I have to write something really fast. What can I write that isn't in here that I haven't ever written about in my life? And I wrote the essay, There Are No Children Here. Oh, I love that one. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> and I wrote it. It felt like I wrote it in about four minutes because people have been asking me my whole life to write about the fact that I don't have children. And I always thought, ah, it's so boring. I mean, lots of people don't have children. That's not an interesting essay. But then I thought, okay, I'm going to write that essay. And it was like flames were shooting out of my computer. I had so many things to say. And I was so grateful because everything that got pulled meant I had a chance to push myself a little harder and write something else. I wasn't going to ask this, but now that you mentioned that essay, I'm just reminded of it. There are so many specific instances that you cite in that essay of like memories. Yeah. Were those things you had written down or did that, like you said, when it was like flames coming out of your computer, were those things that were just in your head and, and came back to you as you were writing? No, they were just they were just things that were in my head. And I wrote it in a way I've never written an essay before, which is just little numbered vignettes. Uh, I didn't try to weave it together. It was like, this is when this person told me I should have ch children. And this is when this person told me I should have children. And this is what happened here. And um, so it, it just came together really fast. And one thing that I should say, I was originally going to publish that piece in Harper's Magazine. And I had sent it to the editor, which was a whole funny long story. He called, he said, do you have anything? And I said, oh, I've got this essay. It's really long. You're not going to want it. And I sent it to him. And that was, there are no children here. And he called back and he said, oh, yes, we do want it. Um, 
And I said, well, listen, if you're not afraid of something long, I've got something that's so much longer. And I sent him these precious days. And so they published that. And and they also wanted to publish the piece about not having children. And I was like, oh, God, that's just too much. That's like half the book. But this person has a sister who has six children. And she went to Princeton. She's super smart. Her kids are really close together. She's still young. And he said, I really want to send this piece to my sister because your experience is so exactly parallel to her experience. Your experience not having children and her experience having six children and having all these people, strangers come up to her in the grocery store saying, how could you do that? You know, that's so terrible. That's so selfish of you. And people coming up to me saying, that's so selfish of you to not have children. It's so selfish of you to have too many children. And I struck up a friendship with with this editor's sister, and I just adore her, but I felt such camaraderie and thought, this is the other part of choice that we don't talk about, the choice to have as many children or no children. I think that's funny, too, because the essay that you replaced the Reese Witherspoon profile, which you mentioned was on feminism, that's still, there's a, a misogynistic sort of sexist probably feminist tone to both of them. Absolutely, because when we think about people telling women what they can and can't do with their bodies, we think that's about abortion or birth control. But oh my gosh, it's really just about everything. (laughs) Yeah, judgment in general. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Lastly, Anne, I know you mentioned a couple of books that you are reading now, but we always end with recommendations for our listeners. So are there any other books that you've read that you would like to recommend to anyone listening? That are actually, that are actually out, out now. now yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Um, this is going to make me look like I am deeply into middle grade, but uh, Katie Camello's new book, The Beatrice Prophecies, which is illustrated by Sophie Blackall, is a book that you want to buy today to see if you can still get a first edition because you can sell it when your children are ready to go to college and make a fortune. Um, it's like it's like the day Charlotte's Web came out. It's such a classic and it will be around for a very long time after we are all gone. So uh, it's a thrilling book. Uh, a book by Asali Solomon called The Days of Africette which came out, I think, two weeks ago that I absolutely adore. Uh, Very slim, smart novel about two women who meet in college. Did you read it? I didn't read that yet. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. The Elizabeth Strout novel, O. William, which continues her journey with Lucy Barton, is fantastic. I think Liz Strout is one of our very, very greatest novelists. Actually, Three of my top three all-time favorite novels novelists all have books out right now. Colson Whitehead, Harlem Shuffle, which is just a giant reward. Such a smart, fun, dense book. Uh, Liz's book, Liz Strout's book, O. William. And then Louise Erdrich has a new book out called The Sentence, which takes place in a bookstore and is a, in Minneapolis and is about this last year and everything that happened in Minneapolis. And the amazing thing is while she is examining the great pain of our country, and Colson's book does this too, she manages to be funny. 
and that's such a gift. Um, Also, Lily King has a collection of short stories out right now called Five Tuesdays in Winter. Writers and Lovers was my favorite pandemic novel, and I'm thrilled that she has a new book out. Uh, Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss, if you want to laugh your head off. And I think everybody wants to laugh their head off right now. I agree. Todd Daughtery's Little Pieces of Hope, oh, yes. which is just a book of lists that that sort of light up every little spot in my brain. I can do this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> we had Todd on last, oh, yeah, last uh, fall. It was an idea that was bought at the time, and he had just started talking about it because he had done it on Instagram, but it wasn't a full book yet, and now it is, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's a really joyful book. One thing as a bookseller that I find people are always walking into the store and say, give me something that's smart that won't crush my soul. Um, and so I'm trying to really specialize in books that are smart and won't crush your soul, which all of these books fall into that category. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations and for taking the time. And I hope that even though you don't normally listen to podcasts all that often, that you at least enjoyed being on this one today. I really enjoyed (laughs) being on this one today because I enjoyed talking to you. Uh, And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. We'll be right back with Jacqueline Coley. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jacqueline Coley got her start as a journalist before joining Rotten Tomatoes as their awards editor, as well as co-host of the podcast, Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. She's an expert in all things pop culture, having watched, read, and seen nearly everything in television, publishing, and film. This month, Rotten Tomatoes releases their newest book, which is their first TV-focused publication. It's called The Ultimate Binge Guide, 296 Must-See Shows That Changed the Way We Watch TV. Compiled by their editors and staff, it is truly a must-read for anyone who loves television, which, in my opinion, should be everyone. Now here's my conversation with Jacqueline. Hi, everyone. We're here with Jacqueline Coley, the awards editor for Rotten Tomatoes. Jacqueline, thanks so much for being here. Seriously, thank you guys for having me. I mentioned this before we started recording, but I am a big fan of your podcast, which I think has the best title. (laughs) It's called Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, which I think you probably hear all the time. Yeah, it was so funny when they pitched this show, uh, the podcast, sorry, I was literally like, oh, so you guys are going to take every single person I meet in a movie theater lobby and turn it into a podcast that we can like push out weekly as like a therapy session for me. This is great. And yeah, that's in, in a way, that's what it ends up being because... What folks don't know, now the podcast has helped them know this, is that we get just as upset sometimes about these scores, but that's the fun of it. Right. You're not involved in the scoring. You're just aggregating the data. Absolutely. As I like to say, like getting mad at Rotten Tomatoes is like getting mad at the Weather Channel about the weather. But having talked to a few meteorologists, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> it's like they literally get mad at the weatherman for reporting the weather. So I feel good in our uh, position on that. Have you heard about one movie or one TV project or something in particular that really sticks out for you that people are so much more upset about than others? 
I wouldn't say more or less. Um, we actually have a book that was our previous book called Rotten Movies We Love, which I actually gave to your boss when I went to the studio for a taping. Like I was in the audience and I literally was like, I'm going to give him our book because I like <laughs> just so happen to have a copy of it with me. According to him, he said he did read it. So I'm, I'm excited to hear him say that. But yeah, no, that's like a combination, I think, of about 196 different titles that folks are sort of debating about. So there's not one, but I will say it really depends like who you are. So you hear a lot of like people from my community, like black folks will be like literally like Space Jam or Sister Act 2 or like BAPS. There's certain movies that like really resonate with them. If you're like a really younger uh, male, like Hot Rod or Step Brothers might be the movie that sort of hits with you. If you're a female of my age, they, they like literally get all up in their feelings about Nancy Myers The Holiday. <laughs> so it, it really just depends on who you are. So I can't say there's one that comes out more than the other, but I will say everyone has that movie that either they know the score and they feel it's an injustice or they're like shocked to find out that that's what the score is and that this movie that they love was not loved by critics when it came out. You mentioned Sister Act 2, which is one of my all-time favorites. Does that have a very low rating? Yeah, I think it's like 11. That's horrible. That's yeah. not right. And like the community, like I will tell you, like <laughs> we I've had like several folks be like, you with them Rotten Tomatoes. And then like my mother, who like these are not my type of movies necessarily, but I really respect what he's done as far as uh, his work in cinema. My mother has watches every single Tyler Perry movie and lives for them. And that was like the first thing she like found out. She didn't even understand what my job was, but she was just like, mm, I don't know about you and them tomatoes. This is my mother. <laughs> I want to get to the book in a minute, but because you mentioned your mom, is this a dream job for you? I mean, you get to talk about film and, and television and people, two people in film and television all day and watch this kind of stuff for work. I mean, personally, for me, my job is not as heavy as yours in terms of that lift, but it is similar. And I feel so lucky all the time. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I, I seriously, so I went to business school, like this whole entertainment dream was something that was very far-fetched to me. Like speaking of my mother, um, when I went to go as the first person in my family to go to college after high school, and I said I wanted to major in creative writing and minor in musical theory, my mother turned to me and said, uh, well, I want you to buy me a house one day, so don't. <laughs> and so I got a business degree and I worked in tech and like health information technology for like 10 years. And this is sort of like my second career. And so I I absolutely think it's the biggest scam on earth that I get to talk about what I used to get in trouble at my project management job for having on the side of my spreadsheets is now literally my job. Watching YouTube is a part of my daily existence and I have to like put other things on hold. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I gotta watch Deep Blue Sea. It is so cool. I feel so incredibly blessed. Um, in the end, it's like a job like any other, but I would be lying if I didn't like wake up some mornings and be like, I cannot believe this is my gig. Like they pay me to do this. I must have like, I still think of it as a scam, but I know it's not. It's also a lot of hard work. It's so great. I think also it probably resonates more in terms of its importance to you after having lived through jobs that felt more like jobs. Oh, absolutely. Like this used to be my hobby and my passion. You know, I started freelance writing and and this sort of like on camera and talking about movies things sort of came on later. But 
that was just what I did for fun. And um, the fact that I've made it my job now, it's interesting. It's allowed me to fall into my other passions more as a bit of an escape because I was, I was telling someone, there's not a single time that I'm watching TV or movies that it cannot be somehow related to work. So that is kind of like a double-edged sword sometimes because what used to be my escape is now like, I might have to talk about this on TV at some point. Yeah. So books is actually the one that I, I really lean into now, especially. So I'm very happy that I don't do anything with books other than books that are made into movies. So anytime I'm reading, it's usually just for me. Well, speaking of books, Rotten Tomatoes is coming out with a book the end of this month, and it's called The Ultimate Binge Guide, 296 Must-See Shows That Change the Way We Watch TV. I think the first obvious question is, how did you guys settle on 296? That feels very arbitrary. <laughs> it was not arbitrary. Honestly, I think we could have done 496 if we kept going. It was like, imagine like a very like Charlie Day whiteboard for us like narrowing down which ones we put on there. Um, it started with like this huge, huge long list. And then we sort of had to divide them up into separate areas like cult classics, you know, cancel too soon, and really sort of try and hit the major sections and the major moments in television history, even though we knew for a fact we absolutely are in no way going to be able to encompass everything that was on television. And 296 was the number that we ended up with, but I remember at one point it was 150. I remember at one point it was 450. I mean, like the Rotten Tomatoes editorial staff who all contributed to this really had to go through a lot, I think, to, to come to that number. But I love that number. And there's so many surprising and uh, familiar TV favorites on there that I think folks are going to really enjoy reading it. So you mentioned the whole editorial staff was involved in this. And you kind of break down the different subsections, which some were extremely funny. But how did you go about organizing it, all of you together, into something coherent that you felt like really resonated with what you were actually trying to say? Well, I can't take credit for this. It really is the brainchild of our former editor-in-chief, Joel Mears. He was the one who sort of helped us, along with our senior television editor, Debbie Day, sort of find the big rocks, as we like to say. But it really started with that first big list of films. And first we divided them by time period because we knew we wanted to make sure we went back to the very infancy of television. And we knew we also wanted to cover aspects of television that don't necessarily get as much play. Like everyone thinks of the West Wings and the Sopranos, but reality TV definitely had a huge moment in television history and it shouldn't be passed over just because certain people don't find value in it. You know, favorites by kids and adults, animated series. So it really started with that big long list. And then it was sort of like, okay, let's find your family. Like we know we want to do the West Wing, but what is the family that it goes with? Game changing uh, sitcoms is probably better than, you know, our sort of like political drama section or something like that. So really finding a broad but very specific group of shows that we could put together and have folks be like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to find under, you know, grown up genre or, you know, mysteries and mind Fs, as we call it. <laughs> Were there any that you personally didn't get to include but really thought should have been in there? <laughs> That's essentially like letting you in on family drama. So I'm not going <laughs> to tell you what I fought for, but I will tell you it is like, I'll tell you from our last book, my boss is the biggest share and burlesque fan. And me and him, I was like, oh, I want to do burlesque. And he was like, no, honey, you will not be doing that. So there was like a lot of that. But also what I think is great is because we all wrote so much. Um, I wrote, I think about 
20 entries total for the book, maybe 25, which is a lot for me considering just how many folks we enlisted from around the television landscape. We brought in other television writers outside of the Rotten Tomatoes staff along with the Rotten Tomatoes staff. So there was definitely plenty of work to sort of go around. And what was great is there were different ways you wrote about it. So some of them were very long form essays. So like I wrote a very um, personal um, love letter, I think, to Issa Rae's Insecure for the book, where I really got to talk about being an awkward Black girl and how literally that was the first time I saw myself in any form of media accurately portrayed. And I absolutely sort of am, am like emotional thinking about it, but completely grateful to her to show that aspect of messy 30-something growing up on television that wasn't Girls or, or some of these other shows. It really felt myself. And then I just wrote, you know, maybe a small blurb about The West Wing. It really just depends. So even if you didn't write the very long personal thing like I did for Insecure and like the one I did for Boondocks, um, you can write smaller um, sort of, this is what happened, this is why it's important. And it, it was really, really fun in that respect. That's amazing because it does feel also that it could have been cathartic for people in a way. They could pitch an idea about a television show that meant a lot to them and then hopefully it resonated with other people in the way that it did with them. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. There's a part of me that is terrified because I do know based on like just how she is on the internet that Issa is very big about like if something's written about Insecure, it will make it to her and it terrifies me that she may read it. But it felt good to press send on that one. And there's so many other entries like that. Television shows are what people went to at the beginning of the pandemic to find escapism. Um, the Sopranos became like a show that people ran to. Comedy specials were huge at the beginning of the pandemic because people just wanted to laugh and not think about anything other than that because everything around us was so serious and traumatic. And escapism television is what people really rewarded in the last season of the Emmys because, you know, things like Ted Lasso is something that you kind of need when you're still battling COVID 18 months later. So, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I really do think what's interesting about TV, movies can definitely shape us and, and make our lives, but we grow up with television. Some of these shows were on literally for you know over a decade. And so your existence with them can span so many chapters. Yeah, I think that's so well said. Lastly, Jacqueline, we typically ask guests to give book recommendations, which if you have a few, I would love them. But because you're here and you're an expert, we could use a few TV and movie if you want recommendations too. Okay, so I will first start off with saying, if you have not seen Squid Game, where are you? Please, please, please get yourself together. There's a couple of shows that are returning that I think folks should check out that I've been like blessed to kind of see early. And one of them is uh, Cobra Kai. The new season of Cobra Kai is amazing. The new season of Big Mouth is also amazing. I believe that it's definitely out now. A new show that you don't maybe know about but is going to be amazing is Wheel of Time. This is a big sweeping Amazon fantasy show that I think a lot of folks should uh, should tune in for. It is, um, it is absolutely incredible. And then for movies, there's so many great movies that are coming out right now, but Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh film. And I, I think for my, for my inside baseball hipster fans, if you're looking for like an independent film that folks maybe not talking about, uh, definitely check out The Worst Person uh, in the World. Uh, that one is incredible. It's a foreign language film that premiered at Cannes and it is one of the funniest, uh, m most uh, hilarious and heartfelt performances I've seen all year. 
So, and then books. Oh man. So I'm an unabashed dirty romance novel reader. Like I definitely <laughs> like try to elevate myself a bit with other stuff, but Stacey Abrams actually writes romance novels and she has a new one out right now. So definitely check out everything that Stacey Abrams writes. She writes it under a pseudonym, but if you just Google Stacey Abrams romance novels, you can pull up all of her stuff. And there's this series that I've been obsessed with that has been out for a while called Sin and Chocolate. It is a demigod romance series about the gods' children and they sort of like have this like Greek mythological underworld that exists alongside of the regular underworld with like section chiefs and mob bosses. It is so out there, but so fun, very sexy, very cute. Um, Definitely check that one out. (laughs) Okay, great. Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time. It was so nice to speak to you. I'm a listener of your podcast as well. So this was such fun. Typically, we ask late night staffers to share book recommendations, but this month we are featuring a special guest, Hillary Myers, aka Seth's mom or hurry to the real late night fans. If you've watched late night over the years and seen Seth's interviews with authors, you know what a tremendous influence Hillary has had on Seth's love of reading. To this day, Hillary reads multiple books a week and keeps track of her favorites through the year. We asked if she would share with us here at Late Night Lit some of her favorites from 2021. So I'm Seth's mother, Hillary. He has kindly credited me with his enduring love for books. I have always been a voracious reader, and when Seth was very young, we walked to the library at least twice a week to select books. As a scholarship student at Northwestern University, I worked at Deering Library, and to this day, bi-weekly trips to my local library continue to be part of my routine. I prefer to turn the pages of my books. Since retiring, I have even more time to read. I read at least three books a month. I'm a member of two book groups, which I find so valuable as they expose me to authors and titles I would have never considered. I take notes on what I read and rate each book. I only like to recommend books that I would rate a nine or certainly a 10. This year I've read over 70 books with only five rating a 10. I'd like to mention them. Shockingly, number one is nonfiction because I read very little of that genre. I was drawn to Patrick Radden Keefe's second book, having loved his first, Say Nothing, about an unsolved murder during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. This year's tour de force is Empire of Pain, a blistering account of the Sackler family's culpability in the opioid epidemic. Keefe's writing is cinematic in style, So many scenes encompass such great drama. In this book, you come to know and despise the characters who acted with so little regard for the consequences of their greed. We are introduced to the Sackler dynasty, a father and his three sons who come to New York from Germany to seek their fortune. Although the father struggles in the business world with bankruptcies of his various small businesses, he educates his son as physicians and promises he's given them something no one can ever take away, their good name, a name that is thoroughly tarnished by the book's end. The Sacklers prospered greatly from opioid sales. With their vast wealth, they bought the Dender Temple from Egypt and had it dismantled and reconstructed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. 
Like many universities, libraries, and museums around the world, the plaque at the door read, brought to you by the Sackler family. One of the heroes of Empire of Pain is the famous photographer Nan Golden. She was devastated by the suffering of the AIDS crisis, coupled with government indifference, and vowed never again. At the height of the opioid crisis, Nan drew a line in the sand and acted. She had good access to the Met Museum, as she had exhibited there on many occasions. On the night of a museum black tie gala held in the Dender Temple, Nan and 100 of her friends entered the catwalk above the reflecting pool. On her signal, they each dropped 10 orange prescription bottles into the water, labeled, prescribed to you by the Sacklers. When approached by security, they all laid on the ground, feigning death. As Keefe, a journalist by trade, states at the end of the book, he received additional damning testimony in an anonymous package accompanied by this quote from The Great Gatsby. They were careless people. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back to their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess. I read this 500-page book in three sittings. I was that riveted. Keefe is a storyteller. Another author who cements her legacy over and over again is Elizabeth Strout. Her newest, Oh, William, really touched my heart. The title grabbed me first. I'll often say, Oh, Yeri, to my husband. Now, of course, his name is Larry, but in the Myers family, I'm Hurry, he's Yeri, Seth is Sufi, and Josh is Poshy. Oh, Yeri, to my husband. This phrase can be spoken endearingly, pityingly, angrily, so many emotions in a marriage. I read this book in one sitting. Her previous heroine, Lucy Barton, returns as the newly widowed dowager. Her first divorced husband, William, is the other protagonist. The book includes snapshots of their life together, the drama, the betrayals, the withholding, the love, the humanity that draws them back together in the face of loss. Strout's heroines, Lucy Barton and Olive Kittredge, will live on with great female protagonists, such as Jane Eyre, Anna Karenina, and Emma Bovary. And to conclude, a shout out to my other year's bests, Anthony Doerr's Cloud Cuckoo Land, Amor Tolles, The Lincoln Highway, and sadly, the last from my beloved John le Carre, Silver View. And to go back in time for a minute, I have to mention the inimitable Maggie O'Farrell, her widely acclaimed Hamnet led me to read all of her novels. Her very first effort, After You'd Gone, rates a 10. This is one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever read. I'll end with a quote from it. How was I to know he was a gift I couldn't keep? This has been Late Night Lit. My thanks to Seth Myers, Mike Shoemaker, Ann Patchett, Jacqueline Coley, Hillary Myers, Matt Ryman, Jay Johnson, and Ross Lupold. Our theme music was written and performed by the 8G Band. For Late Night with Seth Myers, I'm Sarah Jenks Daly. Thanks for listening and happy reading. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this perfectly popped, 
endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.